Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. People Love Dead Jews. That's the title of Dara Horn's latest critically acclaimed book. These past weeks, I've found myself wondering, as perhaps you have, why so many decent non-Jewish people have remained silent in the face of the largest mass killing of Jews since the Holocaust, or worse, defended, excused, apologized for, or justified terrorism. As Dara says, the point of her book is not to explore anti-Semitism, but rather to scrutinize the ways in which Jewish history is exploited to comfort the living, and to distract from the main issue, the very real deaths of very real Jews. And, as she told me before we began recording, people love dead Jews now more than ever. Dara, thank you very much for being with us. Welcome to In These Times. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, how do you feel during these days? I mean, I've been better, <laughs> as perhaps all of us have. This is the largest massacre of Jews in one day since the Holocaust. And, I mean, this is, when you think of the brutality with which this was done, the absolute you know, sadism and targeting of civilians, and not just civilians, but, I mean, infants and, and elderly people. I mean, I'm a scholar of Yiddish and Hebrew literature. I have a doctorate in Yiddish and Hebrew literature, and what this is most familiar to me um, from is everything I've ever read in Yiddish literature, not just related to the Holocaust, but related to many, many attempts at genocide prior to that, that people don't even know happened. For example, the pogroms in Ukraine during the Russian Civil War, during which minimum credible estimate of 50,000 Jews were slaughtered in those pogroms. And we think of it, you know, pogrom meaning like, oh, someone's throwing a rock at your house. No, similar to what we witnessed where, you know, organized military assault deliberately, you know, targeting as many civilians as possible. We have examples of this in our liturgy that go back thousands of years. I mean, we, on Yom Kippur, we read about the um, 10 rabbis who were tortured to death by the Romans. And what I think is resonant about that story now is that it was done in a stadium in front of hearing crowds. It's not just about killing Jews, but killing Jews early for fun and entertainment is something I'm thinking about a lot. We're living through an actual pogrom that we read about in history. It is ex it is the same violence and savagery and and uh, barbarism. So many people witness this just absolute horror, and we have so many people uh, in the West, especially, who don't recoil in horror at at what you're describing. Why do you think so many don't see it that way? Uh I don't even want to think about the actual reason, but it seems pretty clear that when people can't condemn this, it means that they don't have a problem with it. I don't think it gets more complicated than that. What do you mean by that? So my book is called People Love Dead Jews, and I did not, in fact, write this book as an exploration of anti-Semitism. It's really about the role that dead Jews play in a wider world's imagination. And a lot of the book is about these sort of more broad and apparently benign attempts to tell the story of dead Jews in a public context. Things like Holocaust commemoration, Jewish heritage sites in places in the world that no longer have Jewish communities, things like that. And, you know, what you see is this obsession with dead Jews is related to this idea that Jews are only acceptable in a Western civilization when they are powerless, whether that means politically impotent or dead. That is the way that it's comfortable for non-Jewish society to regard Jews, is if they are politically impotent or dead. Otherwise, it's a problem. 
And that is literally the word that was used for centuries in Western civilization to describe the presence of Jews in a non-Jewish society is a problem. The person who's actually done a tremendous amount of research on this is a, a University of Chicago historian named David Nirenberg. He came out with a book about 10 years ago called Anti-Judaism, the Western Tradition. And his argument in that book is that society, Western societies have consistently define themselves against what they call Judaism, which generally has very little to do with actual Judaism. So, you know, this is something that is intolerable to a lot of people in the West. We are surrounded by traditions that are universalizing, meaning that, you know, um, whether it's proselytizing religions or concepts of citizenship that are about illuminating subnational communal ties, all of this runs counter to the sort of structures of Jewish society, which is to not proselytize and to create autonomous communities. I think there's a lot of many, many more deeper layers to this. But I think this is something that people don't even think about. And it's just sort of in the air. And even well-meaning people who are are not anti-Semitic, they don't even realize that this is how they're thinking. Looking at this and uh, my deep, deep disappointment in some of the responses and lack thereof of leaders of key institutions, universities first and foremost, maybe in my mind. The more elite the university, it seems, the more trouble they have in coming out with a clear moral statement. And I was pondering, what, why would that be? These are some of the smartest people in the world. And so from my perspective, I think they're one of three possible reasons or, or some amalgam of all of them. One, they don't actually see the moral issue. Two, they're cowards. Or three, deep in their hearts, they're sympathetic to at least the goal of resistance and, and look at what Hamas did in that context. Uh, first of all, do, do you accept that? And secondly, of if you do, what do you think of the three are most motivating these just terribly disappointing and morally obtuse responses? Um, I mean, morally obtuse is very generous of you. <laughs> and disappointed is super generous of you. What I found especially amazing to see is all of the obtuse statements that have been put out by institutions, including my own children's public school district, where there's like this sort of statement that says something like, we are saddened by violence in the Middle East. I'm like, well, you know, what's funny is that you claimed last year in our particular school district that had a variety of anti-Semitic incidents in the school. Last year, the school was all like doubling down, committing to fighting anti-Semitism. And as I explained to the school superintendent, if you cannot bring yourself to use the word Israel or Jews or anti-Semitism in your public statement about the largest slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust, it's official. You're not fighting anti-Semitism. You are enabling it by pretending it doesn't exist and by telling the entire district that it doesn't exist. Um, to her credit, she did um, go back and I want to, you know, acknowledge Teshuva and, and Hakarata Tov and um, that she, you know, this particular person did put out a different statement. But what I think is amazing is how people, oh, I don't want to be political by by using the word Israel or the word Jews. Go one step past that. What's the reason for not using the word Israel or Jews? Because you don't want to offend someone who might be offended by the existence of Israel or Jews. I don't see any other way of looking at that. So you think when a university president, for example, doesn't respond because they say we follow a policy of neutrality here. We don't comment on these things. Yes, that would have been a position which would have made sense for any number of institutions to have taken. But these are the same institutions that didn't take that uh, position in the past and in the very, very recent past. 
that would be plausible if they hadn't put out all these statements about the Russian invasion of Ukraine or about the murder of George Floyd or any number of the recent events. So it's not particularly plausible. So a university president who doesn't respond because they don't respond to overseas issues or political issues or so on, who might have responded very morally strong statements on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example. They don't respond on the Israel issue and on the violence against Israelis and Jews because deep down they might have some kind of uh, structural, visceral animosity to the Jews that they might not even know about? I think that this is something that people don't even realize. Um, I also think that Iran and its proxies have done an amazing job over the past you know, several decades of spreading propaganda uh, about supporting groups like Hamas. I think that people are unable to distinguish between Hamas and Palestinian people as a whole. But what I think is astonishing is the unwillingness to look this in the face because Hamas is an openly genocidal organization. If you read Hamas's charter documents, they're not even interested in Palestinian statehood. Like that, they're not interested in Palestinian independence. That is not their goal. They're part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Their goal is to create an Islamic regime and to murder all the Jews. They're very open about it. They've been open about it again and again and again. That's their goal, is to murder all the Jews. That's their goal. And it turns out that they meant it. There may be some, you know, complicated machinations going on with Iran and, and other allies in the region and this sort of thing. But, like, they're not playing four-dimensional chess when they're murdering Jews. They said that's what they want to do, and that's what they're doing. And it's not some reaction to something the Israeli government did or didn't do, because this has been going on for decades. Also, I mean, what's interesting about Hamas is like they're an Islamist movement, but this isn't even like you know, what the PLO used to be or something like that. This is much more similar to something like ISIS. This is an Islamist movement whose goal is to create this Islamic kingdom and murder all the Jews. There's no room in a conversation about Hamas. This is not like, oh, these people are uprising against Israeli oppression. Hamas has been super open that that's not what they're doing. I think that there is something deep and unspoken in Western civilization that does not view Jews as people to the point where people don't realize that that's what they're tapping into in these situations. So if you and I see this so clearly and so many good people see it so clearly, what do you think it says about Western civilization and the bastions, the jewel in the crowns of Western institutions that so many don't see this so clearly? What is the health of Western civilization nowadays? This is failed the Jews before. Judaism is this counterculture that runs through the whole history of the West and often challenges the history of the West. You know, it's funny when you say about, oh, these universities are these jewels in Western civilization. I can tell you that in my book, I have a chapter about Varian Fry. He's one of, I think, only a couple of American righteous Gentiles who went to Europe to save you know, Jews and other dissidents from the Holocaust. He became interested in that work because he was living in Germany in the 1930s as a journalist. And there's a, a very early interview he did in um, 1933, right after the Nazis came to power with, I'm going to pronounce this guy's name wrong, as I always pronounce everyone's name wrong, with a, a man named Ernst Hampstangel, the Nazi press officer. And Varian Fry was a Harvard graduate, and so was Ernst Hampstangel. Ernst Hampstangel was an American. 
His parents were German. He was an American citizen. He had graduated from, you know, Harvard class of 1909. And when Varian Fry walked in to interview him, he was like super excited to see another Harvard man. And, you know, started playing all these songs on the piano that he had written for as Harvard fight songs for the Harvard football team that he had now changed the lyrics and adapted them as anthems for the Hitler youth. Um, so I was sort of researching this when I was doing this piece in my book about Varian Fry, and I came across all this material. Actually, Ernst Tapstangle, after he was appointed as the foreign press officer for the Nazi regime in 1934, so he'd already been serving this role for a year, was appointed by his Harvard class as vice marshal for his commencement for his 25th reunion. And he went back to Harvard for his 25th reunion in 1934. The reason they invited him to serve as his marshal for his class was because he had been, you know, appointed to this high position in this government overseas. Then it was like this whole controversy. You know, he ultimately declined the marshalship. I mean, the Harvard Crips, which is the student paper, published these editorials about how they should give him an honorary degree. I was a editor of the Harvard Crimson. And they just published a statement last year supporting boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And they did that in a week when there had been like 15 people murdered in terror attacks in Israel. And they did it only in response to a giant billboard that student groups had erected on campus that was literally promoting the blood libel. You know, Israelis are harvesting Palestinian organs, like things like this, like with no connection to any reality. You know, this idea of you know moral bankruptcy in universities is, is not new. Unfortunately, that was never their job. There were a lot of things that Harvard could teach me, but it wasn't going to teach me how to be a good person. It wasn't its job. Do you think that shouldn't be the job of universities or they just don't consider it their job? And and if not, who should teach you morals? So we've got this thing that maybe you've heard of. It's called the Torah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm serious, Dr. Horn. I once had a years ago, but uh, I still remember it because it was so... Dramatic to me. I had a meeting with the uh, New York City uh, education chancellor, uh, and we got into a discussion about religion and uh, morals. and And I asked him, "What do you see your job is in the schools?" And this is, you know, presumably K through twelve public schools. New York City is the largest public school system in the country. He said to teach the three R's: reading, writing, arithmetic. So I asked him, "Well, whose job is it to teach morals?" He said, "It's not our job." If they want to understand that, they have to go to you or some other uh, moral authority. So the public schools don't teach. The universities don't consider it their job. Most uh, <laughs> most people don't look to their pastors or their rabbi or spiritual leaders in any kind of intensive way. Where should people get morals? And why are we surprised if the younger generation doesn't seem to us to be morally competent? There's a lot I could say about this. So um, I published a piece about six months ago in The Atlantic, a giant long-form reported piece about Holocaust education in America. And one of the things I was exploring in that is how Holocaust education sort of became this like way to teach morality in this secular setting. I can't think of any other historical event for which we do this. Like, you know, we don't like teach the Civil War where we just teach 1861 to 1865. And then the story is over in 1865. And also the story started in 1861. Like, we don't teach it that way. Like, nobody teaches any kind of history that way. But that's exactly how the Holocaust is taught in most American public schools. And what was fascinating about this was that the result of this was that initially some of these initiatives were intended to combat anti-Semitism. But 
I did this deep dive into the data, and there's basically no data that supports the idea that Holocaust education prevents anti-Semitism. And in fact, there's data that suggests the opposite. And it's very clear to see why, because what you see has happened is this has been extracted from history, and students are literally not taught anything about who are Jews. There's all these states in this country where people are required to learn in school that Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. And there's not a single state in this country where people are required to learn, like, who Jews are. And you see the effects of this, because I remember being in the Dallas Holocaust Museum, and I was talking to the docents there about, you know, what do students typically ask when they come through this museum? And, you know, they said, they're like, you know what students ask? They're like, are there still Jews still alive today? Because mm. if you went to this museum, you sort of wouldn't know. Because it's all about dead Jews. There are no more Jews after 1945, right? Yeah. There are, yeah. yeah. And that's where the story ends with dead Jews. And the problem is what I've discovered is like, you know, there's a lot of people in this country with a lot of goodwill who are really interested in learning more about Jewish culture and kind of have nowhere to go. This is a project I'm working on right now. I'm working with the Weitzman Museum. It's a National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. They're right now just renovating their entire museum, but also sort of repositioning themselves as a way for public school teachers to get resources and lesson plans and things like that to educate people about just the content of Jewish civilization. To your question about like who should be teaching morality, I don't even think it's just about teaching morality. I looked at all these like Holocaust education curricula and how it's like there's this emphasis about empathy and how, oh, what we really should be teaching is like what we all have in common. To the extent that there is moral education in, you know, in public spaces in America, it's often this sort of very well-meaning lesson where we're taught like, oh, see this group of people over here who you might be bigoted against. You shouldn't hate those people because they're just like you and me. They're just like everyone else. The problem with this idea is that Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everyone else. Mm -hmm. Uncoolness is Judaism's brand. I mean, and that's been true since we were back in the ancient Near East, right? When all the other societies are worshiping this Marvel Cinematic Universe of sexy deities and the Jews are like the losers in the school cafeteria with their bossy and unsexy invisible god, right? I mean, like, <laughs> Jews have never been cool. It's almost like a foundational idea of Judaism is to, that you don't conform. And, I mean, and that goes back to the ancient Near East, the idea of monotheism and rejection of idolatry. You know, today we think of that as this obvious, like, oh, you don't pray to a statue. Like, that's not what idolatry was in the ancient Near East. Like, these... Other nations had a lot of gods, and often one of those gods is the dictator. So when the Jews were rejecting idolatry, it wasn't saying we don't bow to idols. What they're really saying is we don't bow to tyrants. And so it's really a model for pluralistic society. So what I sort of think is the mistake in education is this idea that the way we're all going to teach people to get along is by teaching what we all have in common, because that's, to me, the fatal flaw, because that means we have to erase ourselves. I think that what we should be teaching, which happens to be more co-committant with actual education, is not only empathy, but curiosity. Curiosity about the varieties of human experience and curiosity about the many, many ways of being in the world. Curiosity about what other people think that might not be the same as what you think. Um, you know, I think there's this idea of the R.A.D. and Judaism of Judaism on one foot is the ancient Rabbi Hillel says, you know, what is hateful to you, don't do to your neighbor. And that's often taught as though it's like, oh, this is just like the golden rule. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do to you. The problem with the golden rule is that there's an inherent arrogance in it because it assumes that other people would like the same thing you like. 
right? I mean, it's like, you know, I really love Barry Manilow. And so I want to do unto others as others have done to me and blast <laughs> Barry Manilow music through this entire high school. It's like, well, you can laugh at that example. But what if my example is, I mean, I just was speaking in Dallas two weeks ago with a bunch of Jewish students from BBYO. And they were telling me about how, like, yeah, every time we have a football game, we all have to go on the field and pray to Jesus. And those people feel they're being kind and generous by, you know, welcoming us to pray on the football field. Like, that's a do unto others, right? That's this assumption that, oh, we're all the same. And it comes from this deep place in these, these universalizing traditions that we find ourselves surrounded by is this idea like, oh, we're all the same. We all want the same thing. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, we all want the same things in terms of, you know, we want to be alive. <laughs> you know, we want to have chances to flourish, use our talents. Okay, yes, we all love our families. Obviously, we have a lot of things in common as humans. But if you make people check the rest of their lives at the door, then it's the opposite of empathy. I mean, it's the opposite of kindness, and it's the opposite of creating a, a fair and a just and an open society. So I think that, that that is sort of that universalizing idea of like do unto others as opposed to what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor, is what makes people incurious. This idea is so deep in Western civilization that like people are not even conscious that that's what they're thinking. Just to follow up on that and to highly recommend uh, your book, People Love Dead Jews, I love the illustration that you give between the two festivals that are <laughs> devoted to killing Jews. One is Purim and one Hanukkah, where you say that the basic idea against the Jews in Purim is kill all the Jews. It's, it's genocide. The issue on Hanukkah was to eliminate Jewish civilization, not necessarily to kill the Jews, but to take Judaism out of its distinctiveness. And it's fascinating to me that those two so powerful elements in uh, Jewish consciousness and Jewish civilization are still here 2,000 years later. Yes. Yeah, so Purim, I mean, so the Purim version of anti-Semitism, you know, big bad guy wants to come kill all the Jews, right, is that's exactly what we observed on October 7th, right, of, you know, here's the day we're going to kill all the Jews. Let's pick the day and do it. What I think is interesting is the Hanukkah form of anti-Semitism where yeah, the goal is still to destroy Jewish civilization, but it's by editing how Jews are allowed to be Jewish. And I mean, the example I give in the book of this is the Hanukkah story is about this you know, Hellenistic empire that takes over ancient Judea. Um, and at first it's like this soft persuasion where it's like, well, you know, of course our Greek culture is like so much more awesome than yours. And so obviously you want to be part of it. And at first the Jews of Judea kind of go along with this and, you know, we can be a good vassal state and they build a gymnasium in Jerusalem for the Greek games. And, you know, Greek games are not just like athletics the way we think of today. I mean, it's tied up with the religion. They're, you know, worshiping their gods or whatever. I mean, but this was, it was the only way to be a person who mattered in this society was to participate in these games. They built this gymnasium. They then had to recruit teenage Jewish boys to participate in these games. If you've ever been in an art museum, perhaps you recall that Greek athletics are played in the nude. These teenage Jewish boys had their circumcisions reversed so they could participate in these Greek games. I don't even want to know how that's possible medically. Um, but what's interesting is that no one's forcing them to do that. It was what you had to do to be a person who mattered. And it's only five years later that they outlaw circumcision. So, I mean, that's sort of like this model of like, you know, we get to decide how you get to be Jewish. You see it repeatedly in, in Jewish history. Another example of this is um, the Bolsheviks in 1918. They're waging civil war, taking over what used to be the Russian Empire. They need the Jews of the former Russian Empire 
the Yiddish-speaking, quote, masses on their side. And they literally created what were called the Yevsexia. These are Jewish sections of the Communist Party to spread Bolshevik messaging to these Jews of the former Russian Empire. Their slogan in 1918 was, we are not anti-Semitic, we are just, wait for it, anti-Zionist. This is in 1918. This is 30 years before the creation of the State of Israel. This isn't about, like, whatever policies the Israeli government happens to be pursuing this week. Really not about any of that. So what's fascinating about that is that then, you know, they're, oh, and by the way, then they're like, we're not anti-Semitic, we're just anti-Zionist. And that's how this, like, slogan of, you know, oh, you know, we're just anti-Zionist, we're not anti-Semitic, like, that's how the league like, makes its way to, like, you know, I don't know, UC Santa Cruz. I mean, there's, like, a paper trail for this. But what it really comes down to is this sort of non-Jewish society that's telling you how you're allowed to be Jewish. Zionism, the whole point of Zionism was to restore to the Jewish people collective power. And what is so devastating now in terms of the Hamas attack, which is more devastating in many ways than any other war that Israel has fought because it seeps down into the very basics of Jewish identity and Zionist ethos, which is we are going to restore collective power to the Jewish people and pogroms are not going to happen under Zionism and in the newly created state of Israel. I deeply resonate to what you said about Jewish power, and I think that's a big part of it. I see that, by the way, in interfaith relationships that I've had for 20 years. Some really close friends who are senior mainline Protestant ministers, Catholic priests, and even imams. They have a blind spot when it comes to Israel and uh, Zionism, and I think the core of that blind spot is the idea of Jewish power and the reality of Jewish power. I mean, yeah, <laughs> short answer. Yeah. I mean, blind spot is again, generous way. <laughs> it's like, this isn't supposed to happen. You wrote in your book that you thought that anti-Semitism was a conspiracy theory. Did I state that right? And if so, what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's certainly not my idea. I mean, I can't take credit for this idea. And this is another way which makes it confusing to speak about in an American context, because in American context, we often think about bigotry as like a social prejudice, where it's like you see this group of people and you falsely believe that these people are inferior to you. That's like the model of like, you know, bigotry and discrimination that we most often encounter in the United States context with other minorities. Anti-Semitism is occasionally a, a social prejudice, but it is actually more often a conspiracy theory. And the reason that distinction matters is that a conspiracy theory is actually sort of the opposite of a social prejudice, because what you're saying is not this group of people is inferior to me. You're saying, actually, this group of people is superior to me. They're these supervillains who are wielding all this power behind the scenes and they need to be taken down. What that means is that it allows bigoted people to believe that they are, in fact, fighting for justice. Because they're like, oh, you know, I'm taking down this cabal of evil people who are ruining everyone else's lives, right? I mean, that's the sort of story that's fed to people. Obviously, this is, has a lot of currency today since, you know, in our online world, we have a, you know, an enormous problem with conspiratorial thinking. That kind of thinking and that kind of discourse is rewarded by various algorithms and things like that. There are, you know, tech companies that are benefiting from that kind of spread of, of conspiracy theories. I used to think this was unique among bigotries. And actually, I was corrected by one of my readers who had heard me speak and said, you know, here's actually what's interesting is that um, 
that's also true for homophobia. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was actually a really interesting analogy. You know, in other words, that homophobia is based on this conspiracy theory also that like, oh, these people are groomers, you know, they're coming for your children, they're pedophiles, they're taking over the school board, you know, they're spreading their deviancy or whatever it is, right? I mean, obviously, this is all victory, but that idea that there's sort of like this like evil cabal that's like plotting against you. Um, that idea is, it is not unique to anti-Semitic uh, bigotry, but it's not like what we were taught in middle school about how, quote, prejudice works. Mm-hmm. I was taken by your discussion in the book about uh, the Merchant of Venice. Speaking of high culture betraying us all, yeah. I want you to uh, detail your views on that and, uh, and expand on it. My wife is uh, knows all of the Shakespeare plays, loves Shakespeare. My daughter is a Shakespeare scholar and getting a PhD in Shakespeare. We don't fight in my family about money or family or what normally what the husbands and wives fight about. We fight about Shakespeare and the Merchant of Venice. <laughs> and I, I agree with you that it is fundamentally a, an anti-Semitic play. But please explain in your words. Well, so it's not my words. It's in fact my son's words. Um, so this, uh, for reasons not worth explaining on this podcast, people can go read the book. But um, I wound up... Uh, listening to a BBC radio production of The Merchant of Venice in the car with my then my 10 year old son. He's now older, but we're listening to this together. And I'm explaining to him that like, oh, you know, actually the same line that all so many of us when we read this in school were told like, oh, it's not really anti-Semitic. It's just a product of its time. And the way that you know that is because Shakespeare's made Shylock into this fully human character. You know, he has this whole monologue about, you know, I am a Jew, hath not a Jew, hands, eyes, organs, emotions, you know, if you prick us, do we not bleed? And I'm listening to this with my son in the car, and because he's 10 years old, like, every few minutes we have to stop and explain some 16th century pun, and also explain some anti-Semitic line. Like, every few minutes, and I'm just stopping it, and I'm like, doing it again, and again, and again, I'm like, wow, this is god-awful, as like, I'm seeing this through my son's eyes. And then, like, you know, we get to this monologue, which is like, you know, the part that makes it all okay. And my son listens to this, and I'm like, yeah, this is the part where, you know, this makes it all okay. You know, look, Shakespeare says Shylock is just a normal human with normal human feelings. At the end of it, he's like, you know, art, we you know, do if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? And then at the end is something like, you know, if you harm us, do we not want revenge? And my son listens to this, and then he's like, wait a minute that's the part that makes him more human. And I'm like, yeah, look, he's saying how he's just like you and me. You know, remember that great line of how we try to dispel prejudice by saying people are just like you and me. And my son just started laughing and he goes, you seriously fell for that? And he's like, mom, this is the evil supervillain monologue that every evil supervillain does in every superhero movie. You know, oh, I've had a rough life, and if you were me, you'd do the same thing, and that's why I'm gonna go kill Batman, ha He's like, you're not supposed to fall for the evil supervillain monologue, Mom. He's like, what idiot falls for the evil supervillain monologue? And I'm like, huh, I guess me. Hmm. You. And everybody else. You and everybody else. Yeah, so. right. or I should say, every Jew who's ever read this play and doesn't want to divorce themselves and realize how they've been rejected by Western civilization because that hurts too much to say that. But what that means is that puts Jewish readers in this position of like, you're like the abused wife who's like explaining why her darling husband beat her up. The contortions that people go through to pretend that this isn't what it is. I mean, and certainly the way it was always performed 
any production of this play before the Holocaust, like, the Shylock character would be wearing, like, you know, some, like, horrific mask with, like, a big nose and, like, you know, the devil's claws. I mean, there was no ambiguity here. There's no ambiguity here. But yet, what interests me about this is not, like, Ooh, Shakespeare anti-Semitic, we should cancel Shakespeare. It's like, no. I'm not saying cancel Shakespeare. But I'm saying, like, this double helix of hate and art are built into our world. Yeah. Also, like, Shakespeare wrote a lot of plays. This is one of, I think it's like seven plays of his that are most often performed. And, I mean, he wrote a lot of plays. And this is one of his top plays that's most often performed. And I think it's worth asking us ourselves why. Dr. Dara Horn, I want to uh, thank you very much, not only for spending this time with us during a very difficult period in Jewish history, uh, but also for all of the entire body of your work and and all that's yet to come. So on behalf of the Jewish community, thank you very much as well. Thank you, and uh, I'm hoping for uh, better times ahead. I want to pick up on one point that Dr. Horn mentioned. She said, Jews are only accepted if they are powerless, politically impotent, or dead. I've been pondering now for weeks why so many of my non-Jewish colleagues with whom I have had close and personal relationships for years, have not issued statements condemning Hamas, or even emailed or texted me to see how the Jewish community is doing. The outpouring of affection and sympathy from them after the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre was overwhelming and deeply comforting. On the first Shabbat after the shooting, our synagogue hosted a dozen non-Jewish colleagues, all prominent New York City religious leaders. I asked one of my Christian colleagues to deliver a prayer at the Shabbat service. Their concern and warm embrace helped us to heal. But why now, with respect to a massacre more than 50 times greater and saturated with a kind of brutality that one can't even imagine human beings are capable of? Why the silence? Where was the moral outcry, even before Israel began to respond? I think it is connected to what Dara mentioned. Powerless Jews are easier to identify with. It is the natural and comfortable state of affairs for the Christian world in its relationship with our people. Centuries of interaction have led to sincere repentance in much of the Christian world for past theological anti-Semitism, inquisitions, and indifference and silence to Jewish suffering. This has paved the way to a much better and deeper relationship between our two communities. But Zionism has always been a problem for many of even our closest friends in the Christian world. I remember my father sharing with me the close cooperation he forged with religious groups in Washington, D.C., working together on civil rights while he headed the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism in the 1960s. Rabbis and ministers often testified jointly before congressional committees. They felt they were bringing to bear the moral imperatives of their shared Judeo-Christian heritage. So naturally, when the Six-Day War erupted, my father went to these same colleagues, brothers in spirit, as he described them, to support Israel at this, its most existentially perilous time. What could be a more clear-cut moral issue than the right of the state of Israel to exist, my father assumed? And who would respond to the issue with greater empathy than the Christian churches that had become so sensitized to moral issues in general and to the sin of anti-Jewish hatred in particular? But to my father's dismay and bewilderment, the Christian leadership responded with silence or expressions of neutrality. They issued pallid calls of impartial objectivity and prayers for peace. The relationship between Jewish and Christian organizations was so fractured during the Six-Day War 
that an interreligious conference was convened in the fall of 1967 to try to repair the damage. And when my father presented the Jewish critique, a distinguished Protestant leader responded, I always thought you Jews were the prototype of the universal man. Now I see you are only tribal particularists. It is Jewish peoplehood that is problematic theologically for many of our friends in the Christian world. And it goes without saying that the most eloquent expression of Jewish peoplehood in our times is the state of Israel. Zionism was established to grant the Jewish people the political means to express collective self-determination and with the military means to protect itself. With power comes enormous responsibility. But what we have learned through the ages is that it is far better for our people to have power and to struggle with the morally acceptable use of force than to be powerless and at the mercy of the whims of Jew-haters. Among the main assumptions of Zionism is that Jews would no longer be victims of persecution, pogroms, massacres, and genocide. We tried it the other way. It didn't work for us. October 7, 2023 will forever go down in the annals of our people as a stark lesson of what happens to Jews when we let down our guard. History has proven conclusively that Jewish powerlessness is the worst moral calamity. Until next time, this is In These Times.